fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast, Rebel News, and then talk about how China is still secretly plotting to destroy the universe with my friend Caitlin. How are you, Caitlin? I'm doing okay. You didn't even let me say great this time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, part of it is the delay, so I never know if uh, I should pause and like let you go in or... I should pause for the great. I mean, it is your catchphrase at this point. Mm -hmm. Since this is the beginning of a new month, we would like to thank our patrons. Thank you to Durka, Tim, Darren, Ryan, Anthony, Sarah, and new patron Richard. You are the Laurentian elite of the Imperial News Podcast. You're talking about the Laurentian elites? Folding from Laurentian elites. Canada's Laurentian elite. Thank you as well to Nicholas and Ken who are the Imperial News foreign-funded environmentalists. What's your message to world leaders today? Uh, my message is that we'll be watching you. How dare you! This pandemic is a perfect opportunity to support this podcast since I don't think either Caitlin or I qualify for the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. No, we don't. So please, donate to the show if you can, and if you can't donate, take this opportunity to call your MP and tell them to make the CERB available for everyone and to stop with this means-testing bullshit during a pandemic. And now, the Imperial Roundup. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. March 25th. We talked about the 25th on last week's show briefly, since this is when Ezra released a YouTube video about the rebel possibly being defeated by COVID-19. This apparently was a lie. And my guess is that it was a ploy just to get desperate audience members to send them sympathy dollars. The beginning half of the podcast is basically Ezra talking about that video and then just replays the video in full. So there's nothing really new to talk about there. And I will move on. You can just listen to last week's episode where we discussed that issue. Ezra then has on as an interview somebody named James Dellingpool. Have you ever heard of James Dellingpool? No. He's new to me as well. Apparently, he is a writer for Breitbart out of the UK, and James primarily is a climate denialist, basically. He's another one of these types of people. He's also been under controversy for various misogynistic things he has said over the time, especially to other women in the media. He also once said, this is, this is my favorite, so he once said that he was a member of the most discriminated group in British society. The white, middle-aged, public school, and Oxbridge-educated middle-class male. Wasps? Yeah. <laughs> well, the masculine wasp. The most discriminated group in British society. Hmm. Not who I would have put at the top of that list, but... Yeah, I mean, this is a typical response to these, to like diversity work in general, right? And it's basically what Breitbart does normally. So, of course, he's hired by Breitbart. Mm. He begins by telling Ezra that the cure for COVID 
which is all this social distancing that we're doing, is actually worse than the disease because it's going to destroy our economy. And he really wants all the world's governments to send people back to work. James also claims that he had COVID and says, ah, you're fine if you get it. It's just you cough a little bit and you're fine, especially if you're younger. And that's why Ezra and James both start to speculate and discuss that we should let the younger people get out, go out, hang out, have fun, and only self-isolate if you're old. They keep highlighting that it kills only the old and young people will be completely fine. Well, that's why there's a lot of young people already outside going to parties. They had St. Patrick's Day festivals going, even though they knew that this was, you know, already spreading like crazy. There's still people out there that that have that mentality that it doesn't affect younger groups of people. And so we're actually seeing younger people go out. I mean, what they're saying is not far from what a lot of people are saying. It's actually the common rhetoric. It's not even like that crazy of an idea that they're saying these things because majority of the public actually believe that's true. I mean, it's dangerous for them to be continuing to facilitate a false belief, but you are right that this does seem to be held by a, a surprisingly large number of people. And and the sad thing is, is what part of this is just a, an inability, I think, for people to think critically about how viruses work, but also how they impact society, right? So I think a lot of people focus, and we've said this on the podcast before, I think, but a lot of people focus way too much on the death rate and not on how this affects people in other ways. I'm going to make this analogy with anti-vaxxers. So when they talk about the measles vaccine, for example, they're like, oh, there's nothing wrong with just getting the measles because look at how the death rate of the measles is really low. However, the measles comes with a whole bunch of complications such as uh, encephalopathy that cause brain damage in an individual. So it's like just because you don't die from getting it doesn't mean that it's not going to harm you in a significant way. And it's a similar thing with the COVID-19 is that, okay, not every young person that gets it is going to die from it, but they are going to damage their lungs or other things, right? It's not like it's an innocuous thing. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if I agree with that perspective. I think it's more so about the fact that we don't want to overwhelm our healthcare system with a mass spread of, of this. We don't want people who are critically ill taking up space and to the point that we can't help certain people and they're just left to die. So those people that are actually older are going to be suffering the most and actually be disadvantaged. I think another layer to this is I think in a lot of aging populations, there's just a lack of respect for the older generations. And that happens in Canada. Like the expectation is you get old, you're meant to die, go to a nursing home, your quality of life that isn't as important as someone who's younger anymore. And that's the rhetoric that's being reproduced. Oh, they're old, who cares, right? They're gonna die anyways. So I think it's this sense of like younger generations, including the generation that Ezra belongs to, feeling like they're invincible, like they're fine, because they don't actually, I don't know, like they're, they're, they're not in direct threat of these things. But it's also of, it's also of these like ageist attitudes that our society has, and just the attitude towards aging in our population is extremely problematic. We're not really taking good care of people here. Yeah, and it works sort of like both ways there. I think there's ageists, ageism from the top down as well through like the older generations to the younger generations. Well, in the literature around ageism, there is 
like you do capture that population that's like a not working age. And really when we're talking about ageism, it's really connected to your productivity and your ability to reproduce in the society. Once you're unable to have output or be productive to society, a lot of the times you're, you're kind of thrown out. You're not valuable right? Being dependent means that you're, you're invaluable or useless to society. So you don't really matter. The 20 year olds that I was saying could get permanent lung damage from getting it. Yeah. It's that's also true. But it's also true that what, what you were saying, which is that we could overburden the, the system and older people will die. But even in that case, if we overburden the health system, what people aren't taking to, into account is younger people will start dying too. Because the reason why younger people are able to live when they get this virus is because we have ventilators available to help them when they're uh, when they have a severe reaction to this virus. And so, yes, to a certain extent, the the younger generation is not going to be as dramatically impacted as the older generation with this virus. But you're still going to find that 20 year olds are dying if the medical system does get as crowded as it could possibly get. Mm. Like, you're right. There seems to be this, like, weird sense of just, like, ah, let the old people die. They're going to die anyways. And you're way more prescient about that than I was expecting because pretty much James Dellingpool comes out and just basically says that. Let the old people die. They're going to die anyways. But what even their idea that somehow the young will be fine is not true because if an old person gets infected, they're just going to fill up the hospitals. And again, that overcrowding is going to eventually start killing young people, too. Yeah, I guess another layer to this is that there are young people that have autoimmune disorders, other kind of compromised immune systems, other kind of respiratory issues already that will heavily affect them if they get this. So that's not taken into consideration, right? Like it's just this assumption that every single person is completely able-bodied. But again, this conversation goes back to people's ability to produce people's ability to make output for companies, right? Like if you are not a productive human being, you are seen useless to society and therefore your value is diminished and you're treated you're treated like garbage, to be quite frank. 100%. That's why they never mention immunocompromised people in this conversation at all. We need the young people to go out there and work because the economy matters more than anything else. Yeah. And sadly, I have a lot of friends on Facebook that are young who are saying this exact same rhetoric, right? And a lot of it is because they they aren't people with disabilities. They aren't people that maybe are surrounded by older people that they know that will actually be extremely affected by this. And a lot of them, to be quite frank, are kind of selfish. <laughs> that, that is, that is a, a symptom of our neoliberal society, I think. Yes, I don't think that it's like inherently who these people are or the character flaw. I literally just think that, like you're saying, that we have a structure in place that teaches younger people, older people, people of all ages, yeah. <laughs> actually, to uh, to to be more individualistic and look out for just themselves, them as the priority rather than the collective whole. One hundred percent. Moving on, though, James then starts promoting weird cures. To the, so this is the first time that I've, I've seen on the show where we've had them advocating for things that don't make sense. So James starts promoting zinc as a possible mitigant to the COVID virus. He also promotes the thing that Trump's been going on about, which is chloroquine. Another thing I've got, I do believe that chloroquine is proving effective. I know somebody um, who's been desperate to try and get his his um, his treatment out. It involves zinc, which is a very powerful prophylactic. 
we're not going to get into that because I have a interview coming up later in the show with someone who deals with health myths and stuff like this. So we'll just skip right ahead. I just want to flag that this is coming when we get to the interview segment. This is coming from this James Delingpool character in this interview. And of course, as as I mentioned, you were prescient. James ends the interview by saying, Those of us who are skeptical of overweening authority, we still love our parents and our, our elderly relatives as much as anyone on the other side of the argument. The difference is that we are not letting that that love for our parents blind us to the bigger reality, which is that we are destroying Western civilization for the sake of saving a few people who are probably going to die anyway. So now we move on to March 26th, which was in fact my birthday, but we don't have to get into that. (laughs) Wow, okay. Happy birthday. (laughs) I'm just saying, I don't want to toot my own horn here, but I was born. Uh, calm the fuck down. <laughs> <laughs> Ezra begins by stating again that, did you know that planes are still landing from China in Canada? This is such a common theme for him that his his pinned tweets on Twitter, like almost every hour is just like, look, another plane. Or like, I don't think it's that frequent, but like he updates it with every new plane that's leaving China and coming to Canada. Yeah, I don't know what to say to that. It's so fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> Ezra then praises Taiwan's ability to handle the crisis and complains that if Taiwan can just go about as normal, then why can't we? The issue there is like, I don't think Taiwan is necessarily going about as normal (laughs) as he puts it, but we'll talk about that in a second. Ezra then gets into what counts as an essential job. So that's the main topic of this segment. And he does some sort of like stupid philosophical speculating which is like, well, what what should count as a an essential job? And it's not really that interesting. <laughs> but the one thing that he does throughout this whole segment is he has this running gag that is, guess what isn't essential? Gender studies. <laughs> Ah, here it is. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is, the title of the episode was Gender Studies is Not an Essential Service. And so I was expecting to get like an actual critique of gender studies or any other normal stuff. But it literally is just a joke. It's just a gag throughout the whole segment. You know, food's essential, but not gender studies. (laughs) You're right. Gender is not essential. Get it. (laughs) Good, right? That was like a slow bird. Like it had to like get up there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time you were saying, guess what's not essential? Gender studies. I'm like, he's right. He's not wrong. It's not essential. No, that's like, (laughs) he was finally right about gender. My God. He awoke Ezra. Yeah. (laughs) It's a social construct. He's got it. Oh my God. That that is actually amazing. I'm so surprised. I was so locked in that I didn't even see that staring me in the face the whole time. He says absolutely nothing useful in the segment whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, that's um his entire show, Jody. <laughs> I just mean useful for us in terms of like something of substance such that I could rebut it with a here's why you're wrong. This is just like oh great gag, nice joke, bro. <laughs> Got him right. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The interview section of the show was a bit surprising for me. So he has a return guest 
we talked about him, I think, last week, which is uh, Ben Weingarten. Yep. He's the person who wrote American Ingrate, which is about Ilhan Omar. And it appears that he's now going to become a regular on the show, which is not cool. (laughs) He's joining the ranks. He begins the interview by complaining that Omar is trying to create an Islamist theocracy by saying that maybe we should reduce sanctions on Iran because they're harming Iranians who are suffering from this virus. Apparently, that is evidence that she's actually calling for a caliphate in America. Of course, it it could just be that she cares about Iranians like I do, and it is probably a good idea to relieve sanctions during this crisis. I I know it's an insane idea that you care about other people around the world, despite their nationality or ethnicity, or despite what their government does, you care about the welfare of those group of people. Yeah, it's an insane idea. Like, even if I were to buy their premise that Iran is like the greatest evil of all time, it doesn't mean that their people have to suffer because of this. But this is like, uh, like I've talked about this so many times on the show. It becomes like this thing where it's like this group of people are just inherently bad because they're part of this nationality and they have these ideas. And it's like the battle of ideas of the East versus the West bullshit, Sam Her- Sam Huntington kind of bullshit, like back class of the civilizations. And it's just like everyone in that country has these ideas. But the thing is, Ezra applies it to here, which is insane. Like he applies it to like, this is what it is to be Canadians and we're so great. But then he contradicts himself every other week because he talks about how there's all these clashes between liberals and the right. So he actually shows that there's fucking diversity in being Canadian. And that's the same thing in other civilizations. So it's so ridiculous when he just like groups a whole category of people as like evil bad not complex or nuanced in any sort of way and then they deserve to die because they were happened to be born in a certain location like that's just so stupid and there's no consistency in it whatsoever it's not consistent because he literally goes back and forth all the time on these like ideas about groups of people including his own country which i think is funny in itself yeah it's a kind of weird irony yeah now thankfully most of the interview is not about ilhan i guess they had to do an ilhan like bit because he wrote the book but they do move on and they move on to talk about china of course because that's the big subject that ezra is going to do throughout this whole crisis i feel pretty much every single episode has been china their complaint this time is that the world health organization they claim is being controlled by china and we heard this before but now they get it get into a bit more of why they think it's being controlled by china And that is because they claim that the leader, whose name is, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Tedros Adhanom, they claim that he was backed by China. I looked into this and I can find no evidence that there is an explicit declaration of like, China supports Tedros for being the chief who director. Like, so what I did was I looked back to look at contemporary accounts to see what people were saying at the time Tedros was elected. And all I can find is that the African Union was the biggest backers of Tedros' campaign to become the leader of the WHO. And this is partly, I I think, because he was Ethiopian and he had a lot of connections within the African Union. None of this really matters, though, because he also won an election. He won 133 of the 185 available votes to become the leader of the WHO. So the support of China, to the extent that it existed, was not the determining factor of his election. 
<laughs> you know, unless China somehow manipulated every single voting country of the 133 uh, countries that voted for him. Yeah, but I'm not even sure if that's what he's trying to argue. I think he's trying to argue that there must be something bad with the WHO because China supports this guy. I'm not even sure China does support him. No, that's that's the flaw in the argument right there, right? I mean, the other end of it is, like, even if China supports him, the question is, is that support sufficient enough to claim that he would be compromised in a certain way? Yeah. And part of me goes, like, I can see maybe if you go, okay, China supports him, and that's why he's going to go slightly easier on him, on China, because he might want their votes for, like, future elections or something like that. Okay. Possibly, like, maybe you can come up with a theory like that, but they don't go into any of the details. So it gets to a point of, like, I don't know how to research that either. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other evidence that they sort of suggest that the WHO is being controlled by China is that the statements that Tedros has made since this outbreak has happened have been kind of supportive of China. Okay. And as we've said on the show, it's kind of, there's there's a twofold situation occurring here, which is that other countries know that since this originated in China, they need China's support to sort of gain access to their data and information so that they can help treat it in their own countries. So there's a diplomatic reason of wanting to get along with China. But then on the flip side, China has done to a certain extent, so long as we accept that their numbers are accurate, it looks like they've done a good job at mitigating the spread of this virus. Yeah, that's what I've been seeing as well. Of course, Ezra thinks this is all a giant conspiracy, that none of the numbers coming out of communist China are real because they're communists and they're evil. I just saw a person do a a post that was saying the same thing, that they're manipulating their numbers and that the, the virus is a lot worse than they're claiming. And it's a communist country that's giving false information. So I've been seeing that going around everywhere. The thing that's weird about that for me is that you would think that if China was actually largely manipulating their data, that they would try to undervalue how bad it is. But even in part of this interview, they actually almost say the opposite, like China is over-reporting because the reason is they want the U.S. to overreact and therefore tank their economy or some sort of like... Okay. (laughs) And they start like going in on that because like, and the weird thing is because like I recall Ezra from like previous episodes of saying the opposite, which is that China is under-reporting that really it's worse than it is because this is some sort of like a bioweapon that leaked from their labs or some other like crazy conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. But they, they are kind of all over the map on this. It's like, it's like while this thing is still fresh, they're still sort of like searching for the narrative to land on and they haven't quite made up their mind they then talk about taiwan again and ezra says the reason they are doing so well is because they are not listening to the world health organization okay and in reality taiwan isn't actually a fascinating case because they were hit very hard by sars and because of that they spent a lot of time and money and energy developing a protocol in place to deal with the spread of infectious diseases. So they are a a unique country specifically because of that history. 
and have the the machines in place to build ventilators and to produce masks and and all of that right and of course none of that is because they've ignored any who information right (laughs) no that sounds like they're following perfect protocol unlike other countries they were over prepared and it it happened to be a good over preparation in this case is over preparation bad i would agree that it isn't bad but I guess if I were to put my mind into a libertarian's, they would be like, you should let the free market decide how many ventilators you keep in storage. You should let the free market decide to suffer during a pandemic if it ever happens. That's what they're, that's the argument? That sounds horrible. I, I agree. The thing to me is like, we should have publicly funded health care and publicly funded public health such that we have the resources available for this. When it does happen. Yeah, no, exactly. Or it's like even right now in Canada, we're talking about uh, shortages of PPE and certain provinces having shortages of tests. Like Ontario, for instance, we're turning away people for testing and our testing rates are much lower than any other province. So we're obviously weren't ready for this. There was no plan of action. And you've already said this in the previous episodes, but it is literally like our prime minister is on vacation. Like I've been watching him every morning and it's like no progression, no helping out people that are actually the most vulnerable. He's done more bailouts for businesses by giving them wage subsidies, which is ridiculous because what is this? Stephen Harper in the 2008 economic crisis? Like this is ridiculous. Like this is serious. And so many people... I don't know. Like, I don't know how people are going to pay rent come the next couple of months. I don't know how people are going to keep their businesses open because they're doing like a $40,000 loan. $40,000 is nothing, nothing. What are you going to get by with that? People who just opened up businesses won't be able to keep afloat. People who were already just keeping afloat will definitely go under. They're going to lose everything and have to declare bankruptcy. And how are they going to collect things like EI? Once that happens, this that's what's so ridiculous. Like the policies that are being, sorry, I'm going on a rant, but it's just like, it's like what you're saying about this libertarian attitude of like the free market should dictate, I don't know who lives and who survives when it's already a rigged system. So like kudos to Taiwan to actually putting these things into place because other countries knew that things like this were going to happen. This is the thing that frustrates me with all the libertarians who would say something like it's it shouldn't be up to the government to decide who gets to like live or die when it comes to like companies or or even people in this case but here's the thing is like either the government is making those decisions or the corporations are going to make those decisions because clearly they don't have public health in mind because there's no incentive to build all these ventilators for everyone and keep a stockpile right that's why you need government. You need public health. This is a perfect example of why we need government institutions to do this stuff. Yeah. The other thing too is like with the all the things that they're doing, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, the CERB. I'm kind of frustrated with this because I didn't have a job going into this crisis and yet other people have jobs and lost it because of this crisis. Now, my question is, I'm in the same position these people are technically which is that now neither of us has a job, right? But the government is going, only the people who lost the jobs because of COVID are the ones deserving of an emergency relief package. Yeah. And why? For what reason? It's like, I still have a life. I still live. And here's the thing is, I was searching for a job before. And now what kind of job can I search for? It's not like people are hiring right now. You know, that's exactly the issue. Or it's like, I'm about to be laid off my job because my contract ends. 
and in the summertime in between my contracts because I don't have some I don't have a position for four months in the summertime from May to August I usually seek out alternative employment but where is that employment going to come from now and the thing is they've stipulated students don't get this why not yeah why don't students get this like it's none of it makes any sense it's just like they're afraid that, oh, no, we'll create a moral hazard if we just give people money. But it's like you're just they just willy nilly give corporations money all the fucking time. Yeah, it's just a huge bailout that they've been doing. They just keep bailing out companies. And then some of the bailouts they've been doing for small businesses are fucking horrible. Even the small businesses are like, what, I'm just going to rack up debt now? Like giving a $40,000 loan? Great, it's interest free, but it's like they have debt to pay back. And this is also relevant because this is how they end their segment. They actually argue that the leftists in the U.S. government are holding the aid package hostage to push all their leftist programs. Meanwhile, what passed ended up being a giant bailout with no strings attached for the most part. They're creating this narrative of like the left being this evil thing when it's like, I wish the left was doing what they keep claiming the left is doing. And it's frustrating to me because it's like the left should just do it because I feel like they're constantly going, oh, we got to be careful and we don't want to upset people, but they're going to make up shit about them anyways, no matter what they do. No, yeah, that's true. And they end by basically saying that deficits are bad and we're going to create deficits because of this and therefore deficits are the most important thing. So now we actually need spending cuts even more than we used to. Which, you know, great thing. Let's have spending cuts in the middle of a Great Depression. I don't think it's really a Great Depression. Yet. Yeah. yeah. One thing I've been kind of hoping for is that consumer goods would start going down. And I've started noticing with like retailers that's been happening, but I'm hoping with other things as well, like housing, even like vehicle prices, like things like that. I'm really hoping. Gas has gone down for sure. Oh my God, gas is so cheap. (laughs) I mean, I'm half joking about Great Depression, but there was leaked information that suggests that this could go on till July. And if that's the case, that's going to have like a huge effect on the economy that I don't even know. I don't know how to think about that. That's just a weird thing that this could last till July. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't know what people are going to do till then, though. Like, I'm really concerned about, like, well-being in general. Mental health, yeah. Yeah, like, super concerned about that. I'm not sure how people are going to get by that long, especially people who are isolated already. Reach out to people if you can. Yeah. So on that depressing note, (laughs) we'll move on to uh, March 27th. This segment is just so stupid. So he's just super mad that refugees are still allowed in Canada. And uh, that's it. That's the whole segment. Refugees are coming. Watch out. They're going to take your free health care. Actually, in Portugal, you posted this on your Facebook, actually. That's where I read it, that Portugal allowed full citizenship rights for immigrants and refugee people of refugee status. Yep. Yeah. Let's be like Portugal. What the fuck? <laughs> let's be like Portugal. This is exactly what I'm thinking. But part of this is you would think that there would be a... Well, I mean, of course, it's Ezra. I'm just saying that if if you're a human being who likes to be reasonable, you would want an argument here saying, here's why letting in refugees is either going to overburden our system or evidence that they're more likely to carry disease or whatever. And he doesn't even make an attempt to make those arguments. He just jumps right in to just be like, immigrants bad, we don't, like refugees bad, get them out of there. Yeah, because it goes back to its people from these countries and we don't really want them from these countries, right? I mean, the other stuff I said obviously isn't true either but it's like if he was being honest those were those would be like the kind of roots that he would have to go but there is no evidence that they're more likely to have 
diseases. And there is no evidence that the small amount of refugees that are still crossing the border right now are somehow going to be the thing that tips the scale and just destroy our health care in this country. Yeah. The guest on uh, the interview segment is Sheila Gunn-Reed. How can she be a guest if she works for them? It's like when... This is like a dated reference, but I was going to say it's like when the sitcom Mad About You had a crossover with the sitcom Friends. And it's like they both exist in the same world, but they like this is an episode where they cross over. And <laughs> Friends is awful. <laughs> Look, we don't have to discuss the ethics of Friends on this show. <laughs> yeah. We know that you're a friend, anti-Friends person. And I don't like shows from the 90s. I think the 90s was a horrible period of time for a lot of TV shows. I generally agree with that sentiment. I love The X-Files, personally. That was one of my favorite shows. Yeah. And, I mean, it was, it had its own issues. But, like, even, like, this is so way off topic, but I don't care. Even, like, that 70s show, there's so many, like, homophobia lines that are just really uncomfortable to watch. But they still make me laugh every once in a while. And I think most of it's nostalgia. And it's just, it's hard to, like, kick that because I grew up with it. So the main, getting on with the show, the main reason why Sheila's doing this crossover event is because uh, <laughs> the rollout of the carbon tax during this pandemic, like, my God, will Trudeau think of the oil companies? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They really need more bailouts. They also say something super weird and what I think is revealing, which is they say that global warming is not a real crisis because... If it was, they would be treating it exactly like we are treating the coronavirus right now. And that tells me that maybe we should be taking climate change seriously and doing more than we're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is like an interesting nugget in what they're getting at, because I think what they're saying is that if Trudeau really believed climate change was real, he would be doing more about it than he is doing. And that... Like, I don't know what you think about that argument. Part of me goes, I actually think Trudeau really does believe. But then it's like, if he really did believe, why is he doing so little about it? I think it's because the liberals always take a centrist point of view, where it's like, we have to like give one for this side, then we have to give another one for this side. Even though it, inherently these sides are so opposing that it makes you don't actually help any side. And then they end up actually just privileging one side. I don't know, like, like to give it more concretely and not to just say like this and that this side that side and you hear the talking point is like we want to balance the budget well to save our environment or be more economic or not economically ecologically friendly but however what they'll do is they'll like do this like surface level change to give them the reputation that they're helping the environment such as putting a carbon tax which is not really that beneficial and then they'll do things like build a fucking pipeline to help businesses to get those votes as well. And it's a way to play on like the the sympathies of those that are really into climate change and really care about these issues. And then also uh, to get big businesses vote and support. Well, I was just going to say politics is about reputation. It's about getting a vote, getting in that position, right? It's a, it's a game. It's not... It's not actually about making change. I would say that there might be a, some sense in which they don't think, they might believe that cl climate change is real, but they definitely don't seem to be motivated enough that it's an emergency. So it could be like the, that there's subtle aspects of a kind of denialism in there, that they're not taking it as seriously as they should if the climate scientists are, are all right about it. 
which is like interesting to me because it's like they clearly took the health experts on this very seriously to a certain extent and are doing things to mitigate that to the extent that they're tanking the economy for legitimate reasons in a certain sense, right? Which is like for some reason with climate change, they're so worried about tanking the economy that they do hardly anything about it. Well, the thing about climate change is we don't really see the direct effects of how it impacts people, right? Like you're not, like people aren't massively dying. It's not as immediate. Yeah. Like how many deaths have we already had in Canada because of this virus? You don't see the total count of deaths or illnesses based on climate change. Nothing that you have to worry about right now. So why should I have to do anything? Because it's not going to be my problem 10 years down the road. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's it's even like these climate deniers, they can deny it because you can't see a cause and effect directly. You can't just like wake up and hear on the news that a bunch of people died from carbon emissions, right? Like you don't see that. You don't hear about these things. And a lot of it is because climate change is something that's going to gradually affect us as the years go by. And because it doesn't have this immediate urgency like COVID does right now, people are more okay to brush it under the rug and and not actually have to do anything to solve these issues. So the show ends with the mailbag segment. And in this segment, Ezra complains that the WHO is spreading misinformation about face masks. But instead of going into detail on that, we will move to the next segment because there was a lot of health advice on the show this week, and I decided to interview someone I know who is dedicated to combating a lot of science myths. So we will now travel in time to the interview. This week on Ezra's show, there have been numerous health claims regarding COVID-19. So I have with me the executive director of Bad Science Watch and patron of the show, Ryan Armstrong. Welcome to Imperial News. Hello. Thank you. Very good to be here. Thanks for having me. How have you been coping with the pandemic? I've probably been doing better than most. Obviously, everyone's been impacted. I've been lucky enough to still be able to work. and. with the exception of no longer having a grasp of time as it passes, uh, everything's relatively the same for me. Yes, the sense of time really goes away quick. It really does. Especially lately, I've been working some night shifts. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm hard-pressed to know w- what day of the week it is at any given time. I still at least have the marker of my wife, who is currently working from home. But it's still like... Usually I'm used to sending the kids off to school and whatnot, but now it's like they're ever present. So there's never, <laughs> never a moment without them. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, some of the, some of the daily kind of get out of the house routines are no longer present for everyone. Uh, you know, I'm not going to the gym, not going to work, not, uh, going anywhere really. It's difficult knowing like what's an overreaction and not an overreaction. And I find that a lot of people are worried about overreacting, but that seems like a weird place for me because like I would much rather overreact with this than not overreact and this thing spread and cause a lot of havoc. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's uh, it's difficult, of course, when we're, we're dealing with so much information that is 
uh, is constantly streaming <laughs> into our brains. Uh, some of it good information, some of it bad information. I, I think it's it's definitely worth looking into what is effective and I- employing those techniques as much as we can. But it definitely there's a lot of dubious information out there that I think people are getting uh, suckered into, and you know is is buying you know useless supplements a, a good overreaction is getting useless you know services and overreaction i would say probably so th- there is a there is a fine balance but it's it's difficult yeah there's overreacting and then there's overreacting <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's a perfect segue into some of these things so ezra has been talking a lot about uh, or at least raising claims about covid-19 and certain effective strategies as repeated talking points and so I thought I would just talk with someone who has a little bit more experience on these subjects to see how much truth there is to what he's saying. But I guess I'll start. One of the main things that he talks about, and it's not its not only that he talks about it on the show, but he keeps on tweeting that there's planes still leaving China right now. And he's mad at the Trudeau government for not immediately having a travel ban and still not implementing a 100% block everyone coming from China kind of travel ban. And so my question to you is, are travel bans effective? Should we have them? What What's the deal there? So I, I think the first thing to, to clear up is is what type of travel ban we're, we're talking about. Of course, there are many different types. And thinking of, of a travel ban as a complete ceiling of the country is is just not realistic. It's not something we can do. It's something that even if we could do, it certainly would not benefit us in the long run. You know, a lot of medical equipment, uh, I'm sure we're going to touch on it later, like uh, like medical masks, for example, are not manufactured here. They're imported. How are they going to get here? You know, we don't have huge fleets of, uh, you know, autonomous uh, vehicles and drones that are are shipping these things. So we need some level of interconnectivity with the world just the way, because of, you know, how our supply supply lines are set up and, uh, and, and what we require as uh, essential items during the the pandemic. So any type of, of travel ban we're going to be talking about is not going to be, you know, an absolute travel ban, um, which is something that, as far as I'm aware of, has never really uh, occurred in modern times. Even really strict travel bans, there have been uh, numerous documented cases of people who were supposed to be restricted to a certain region being able to still trespass across uh, the border or the boundary of that that travel ban. Um, you know, so even applied against certain types of travel, they're not perfectly effective at preventing people from moving. But are are they are they broad or are they effective? Uh, you know, broadly uh, when implemented uh, as they are, and and the answer is you know somewhat, but it really depends. The strongest evidence seems to suggest that travel restrictions can, at very least, delay the spread of the academic. That alone may be worth it. Obviously, there are a number of advantages to a delayed spread compared to, you know, the entire world being sick simultaneously, which is kind of close to the situation we have at the moment. Uh, of, of course, there there is a little bit of a, a lag uh, across some countries, but the effects that have been observed and reported are, however, really modest. Uh, and the real problem is there there really isn't strong evidence that points us towards a very clear and definitive policy solution. I had mentioned this on my show when he initially pitched 
a travel ban like months ago when this thing was first starting to happen. And my immediate thought was like, you could just like, say if Canada just blocks fr flights from China, there's no reason why anyone from China couldn't fly out of the country and then take another plane and fly in. Like, unless you're going to block all flight into this country, like just blocking one country isn't going to do anything. Absolutely. And, you know, especially when we were looking at, um, I think it was the, the, the first ban was uh, international, but excluding the, uh, the Canada-US border. You know, if people are motivated to get to a destination, they're going to take the route that allows them to get to their destination. But, you know, even so, again, blocking, you know, blocking all transportation just is not practical or possible. Unfortunately, I think there are probably some uh, some smart interventions that can be taken, you know, you know, ways to minimize the contact that people make. Just to give you an example, you know, there's still Canadians abroad who are returning to Canada. Obviously, I think it's uh, it, it's a great thing to uh, keep our border and and uh, and airports open for those people who you know may be unfortunately trapped in in situations where they may have to face the pandemic without medical care if they were isolated at their destinations. But the uh, the government makes a very clear. Uh, recommendation, or uh, not even a, a recommendation, but uh, they, uh, you know, they essentially are demanding those flying in from abroad to uh, strictly self-isolate. Do not, you know, stop at shops on your way home. You go home and isolate for, uh, I believe, the current recommendation is 14 days. So there are other interventions too that can play a role in lessening the potential impact of spread country to country. Of course. Uh, I mean, ultimately, as as time goes on, the travel ban is is really less of a key player because we have increasing community spread, right? Well, that's the thing; it's going to become less effective no matter what. You're exactly right, and it's essentially just a matter of time, right? And then, as soon as there are, as soon as there's community transmission, the the rest of the response is is really all within Canada. The the travel ban you know, whatever it is, becomes increasingly useless as the pandemic goes on. I wonder too, if the whole 14 days issue is part of the reason why an immediate travel ban was so difficult in the first place. Like, I understand as well, like the delays, but the fact that people could have already gotten on a plane and already flown to Canada, America, elsewhere, before we really knew what was going on, and still be incubating that virus for 14 days would have made it difficult for an initial ban in the first place. And then this thing had already sort of spread out there. The nature of it is that we don't have perfect insight into, uh, especially during the initial stages, the, the spread of the pandemic. And, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of just unknowns. I mean, not not even just surrounding the initial spread, but as the uh, understanding of the pandemic before it was even classified as a pandemic was uh, was first starting to be investigated, there there really you know there was very limited knowledge of of what we were dealing with early on, and even now there are all kinds of gaps in our knowledge relating to the spread of the pandemic and effective public health interventions in terms of uh, quelling that spread. So it will become probably much easier in retrospect to to claim you know we should have had such and such travel ban at this specific time in order to 
ensure a delay so that we had time to prepare for supplies. But, you know, all of that is kind of predicated on the notion that, you know, we would have had a lot of that information up front. That's one of the things I tried to indicate last week in last uh, week's episode, which is that a lot of these conspiracies are going to breed from the lack of information that we have currently. Like it's easy for Ezra to blame China in how they handled this thing right now. I mean, it's we're still in the thick of it. So we don't know how much China did or didn't do, which uh, caused the virus to spread in ways that is their fault in that they should have done something. It's really difficult to be a health official to make these kind of like quick decisions. And then it becomes really easy for conspiracy theorists and propagandists to use that gap of information as a way to like paint their enemy in bad ways. And that's not to say that China can't be blamed for stuff. Like I'm all for blaming them if they did something really wrong here when we find out that they did. Absolutely. It becomes very easy to paint any picture you want, especially as a conspiracy theorist. You know, the, the conspiracy theorists are having a heyday with this one. <laughs> but uh, the the other unfortunate reality is that even following the pandemic, um, you know, it's not like we will have perfect information to draw on from the future. The pandemic does not unfold like a series of randomized controlled experiments across, you know, a, a large population. What we have are a number of uh, of different efforts across different countries with different levels of information. And it will be very hard to, even from all of that data uh, afterwards, to draw really clear inferences and come up with really sound policy. I will move on to another uh, topic, just because this is another one that came up on the show, which is this issue having to do with healthcare workers wearing masks and whether or not people who are not healthcare workers should wear masks. So I was wondering if, if you have any further insight into that issue. The consensus, as much as we can call it a consensus, seems to really vary across uh, across regions and you know even now is under review by uh, public health authorities. It seems to be evolving. It, it seems like recommendations might steer to a, a different direction in the near future. To kind of understand the complexities, it's really important to first understand what we're talking about when we're talking about the you know the types of masks and the use cases for them and the the availability of them and the existing evidence. So uh, obviously the big one that everyone is now instantly familiar with from uh, this pandemic is the classic N95. So uh, the medical grade N95 masks, and I, I say that because there is a distinction. There are uh, N95 masks for non-medical use that are not necessarily going to be as effective at uh, preventing transmission and certainly are not certified for these uh, situations. But uh, when we're talking about medical N95s, uh, they're designed to fit tightly around the face of the wearer. And the N95 rating itself refers to its ability to block 95% of particles at approximately, I think it's like 0.3 micron size. Of course, this is sufficient to block the virus. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this. These masks are the ones that we constantly hear are you know, primarily in short supply. So there are interestingly evolving guidelines on the use of uh, both expired masks as well as used masks. And um, you know, this isn't just for non-medical professionals. You know, those are for medical professionals who are now having to make do with mask conditions that they wouldn't have had to ordinarily, at least in most cases. In terms of public use, the general public really should not have access to these masks. These really do need to be in the hands of medical professionals, especially in the context of the, the major shortage. 
there might be an argument for certain service workers to have access to these, but that's really only if we could ensure like a sufficient supply for medical personnel. It's also worth noting that the masks would probably be expected to not be as effective with untrained users, right? For, for a proper seal, you need to be fitted to the correct mask. This is something that, you know, doctors, nurses, et cetera, you know, hospital workers that wear these, um, you know, they perform a, a mask fitting uh, test, which is, uh, it's quite an extensive test. One of the more common tests is uh, you, you essentially put a mask on and you have you know, the equivalent of what is a bucket put on your head. And uh, through the bucket is sprayed a little mist. And you need to uh, essentially, uh, you know, let the tester know if through the mask that you're wearing, you can, you know, smell or taste the mist that's being sprayed. So that's how you test whether you're actually getting a, a proper seal. Ezra's main attack about the masks was because I guess Dr. Tam, who's the health minister that's been uh, working with the Trudeau, Trudeau government about this pandemic, she had stated that using like people need to be trained to use these masks, and so therefore the public isn't like prepared for that kind of thing. And of course, Ezra jumps on that as like, oh, like everyone can wear a mask, you know. But like what you <laughs> what you just described is like it's it's more of like a procedure. And like the other thing on that front, I was recently at a, a grocery store and just as evidence of people not being trained, although I don't think this person was wearing an N95 mask, but they were the people like making sure people are socially distancing in the lineups at the checkouts. And he had a mask on and the whole time he was adjusting it and playing with it. And I'm like, what's the point of having the mask if you're just going to rub your hands off your face the whole time? But so it's like, yeah, yeah like I think medical... Uh, practitioners should have the requisite training to use these things that I think other people in the public, it's going to take them time to sort of like figure that out. So it's not just about fitting the mask, which um, also to the point about everyone being able to wear one, you know, certain people under certain circumstances uh, and conditions, you know, can't wear them, right? Or at least not effectively. I, I don't see you on video right now. I assume your picture is up to date and you have a bit of a beard right now. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't have a good seal. It, it just would, you'd have to shave. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's, there's also like behavior to take into account. If, if people are fidgeting with them constantly and are, are touching the face all the time, it's completely pointless. If they're, you know, not putting them on and, and taking them off in a hygienic fashion, it's, you know, a, a, again, pointless. So there's a lot to using them correctly. That's just not, you know, opening a package and, and putting a mask on. So yeah, so that's the, the N95. The next mask that is worth consideration when it comes to uh, population use is the kind of traditional surgical mask, or sometimes it's referred to as a medical mask. Unlike the N95, this mask isn't designed to completely protect the wearer from small particles. So it, it doesn't fit tightly around your face. It, it does leave some gaps around the edges where you, know, you would be inhaling what is essentially unfiltered air where you, know, you, you could breathe the virus in. So rather, you know, as its name, you know, the surgical mask, it, it's more about, you know, preventing just kind of direct splatter as well as preventing viral transmission from you to other people in your vicinity. So as a mask, it would be a better candidate for widespread use, especially because it, it's easier to use. It doesn't require a perfect uh, fit to avoid, you know, transmission from uh, asymptomatic carriers, right? We, we know now that a large proportion of the population is is asymptomatic or 
experiences mild symptoms. And, you know, if we had a widely available mask that everyone could wear, there may be some level of protection from this. Unfortunately, these masks are also in short supply. So at this point in time, it seems like it's it's not going to happen. And again, this is something that people should leave alone to medical professionals who who may need them. It's also worth mentioning that there really isn't rock solid evidence that the general population using these masks or or other variants would have a, a significant benefit in the context of a pandemic. It is plausible, of course, but there are just so many factors that influence the efficacy of the mask in different contexts, especially, again, you're still dealing with an untrained population. Even though you don't need to be fit to the mask, it's easier to use. Yeah, if people aren't wearing them, if people are wearing them weird, if, if people you know, are pulling them down to talk or like touching their face. I think that probably as a population, the approach to virus transmission is one we should take where we assume that we are symptomatic rather than go about it, going about it in a way where um, we assume that, you know, everyone else is is carrying the virus and, uh, and we need to protect ourselves because it, it's much easier, you know, to prevent the spread of uh, the virus from yourself to others than it is to prevent the spread from others to yourself. Obviously, the number one recommendation is just isolation, right? Even if you don't think you uh, have the virus, if you're not symptomatic, um, you should be isolating as as best you can because uh, there, there's a very good chance, you know, even if you're not worried about yourself, there's a very good chance that you could already be a carrier. And by going out for uh, you know, non-essential services or shopping, you could potentially be be putting it putting others at risk. Now, th- there is one more prospect for uh, masks uh, that it's starting to receive uh, a lot more attention, especially in the in the context of you know decreasing supply of what I'll probably refer to as legitimate masks, and that's the homemade variety. Yeah, there there does seem to be some evolving evidence in this area, but. Really, you know, nothing homemade is going to be a perfect solution, largely because of the materials involved. I, I think cotton is one of the most common that, that has been used, and it, it really is not that effective of a filter. There was a recent study that looked at a number of household objects. They found that the va- like vacuum cleaner bags were fairly effective filters, but honestly, good luck uh, you know, fitting that on your face and going around you know, breathing all day. So it'll be interesting to see any developments there and and if there are any new recommendations. I I think a lot of this stuff is really uh, under review and being constantly scrutinized by public health experts. So I uh, await eagerly uh, what kind of conclusions they they come to and uh, it'll be interesting. I find too, at least with the information I searched for in terms of these more homemade slash cloth masks, is that there's some evidence out there that actually they're not effective and could be like more harmful because they create a moisture atmosphere for these viruses to breed uh, on your face <laughs> rather than uh, blocking this stuff out. It, it's not just uh, homemade masks, but but even you know N95s and, and surgical masks as well. When they become you know overused and and moist, you know they lose their effective filtration capabilities. They become uh, less effective over time, and yeah, especially when they're completely overused like that. So, it, it's people not understanding uh, the the limits and the capabilities of of what they have, and uh, of course the other you know major consequence that I haven't really touched on 
at this point is instilling the, the, the false sense of security and, you know, making people think that they're somehow protected and, uh, you know, can engage in what are essentially more risky behaviors and activities as a result. You know, there's, there are all kinds of studies looking at uh, consequences from, from those types of behaviors, from false senses of protection. And I, I assume the same would hold in this case. The interesting angle that Ezra has with this, or like the angle that Ezra has with the masks as evidence for why we should all be wearing masks, is he points to Taiwan as being, uh, I guess, uh, compared to China, their spread has been quite contained. And he points to them and goes, look, they all have a mask wearing culture. And the thing that like frustrates me is, like, for one, I'm not going to ask you to to give me an in depth understanding of the Taiwanese healthcare system because, like, clearly Ezra's not going to do it, and I'm not going to do it either. Uh, my my guess is they have things in place that other countries don't have that would understand why this thing has been mitigated there. But the one thing is too is there is some evidence on top of that that so rather than the case that we're explaining where it could give you a false sense of security. A whole culture where you're wearing masks signals to others the seriousness of the spread of a virus like this. And so they could be more reminded to wash their hands or do other things if everyone's wearing a mask and taking this seriously. So again, it's it's one of these things where there's not a ton of evidence that the mask itself is inhibiting the spread of this thing, but it could be the mask serves as some kind of social signal that helps people engage in the appropriate behaviors that we want to mitigate the spread of this virus. You know, I'm no expert on on the Taiwan you know, medical system or, or response, but certainly there's there's not evidence directly where we can infer the the cause. At, at best, you know, widespread mask use is is just another variable that we can look at in retrospect. You know, the other thing to note is uh, if they have sufficient supply of masks that um, you know everyone in the general population has one. I know, I, just to be clear, I don't know that that's the case, but I would assume that means they also have uh, sufficient stocks for their medical personnel. Yeah, I do think that they do have sufficient stocks. And the reason for that is because they were severely hurt by SARS when that spread a, a few years back. And because of that, they have like a huge updated healthcare system to sort of handle the spread of diseases like this. But again, I, I don't know enough about Taiwan to know that it's been effective or whether or not the fact that uh, COVID has not spread as fast in Taiwan is because they have these resources due to their overcaution after their SARS outbreak, right? I'm curious to know more. I might uh, I might dig into to Taiwan one of these days and uh, see what kind of data we have. <laughs> Ezra did have a guest on this week that recommend uh, recommended using zinc as a supplement to mitigate the symptoms of COVID-19. <laughs> what <laughs> is zinc effective to mitigate the symptoms of COVID nineteen? So yeah, I mean the short answer is not that we know of. The the logic behind zinc as a treatment comes from a, a standpoint of basic science. And and what I mean by uh, you know basic science is is the science that tries its best to look at the biological mechanisms and you know interactions between different different compounds and. Uh, and looks at uh, you know essentially the broadly the the science at a very low level that that isn't looking directly at uh, how you know taking a compound or a drug affects an actual person right so we know that zinc is a building block that's essential to the immune system so it makes sense that uh, you know taking zinc makes our immune system stronger right well 
the type it's it's very common to to see this type of thinking it is led to just innumerable false hypotheses in medicine just to give you a, like a non-medical analogy um you know houses are built with bricks i mean well brick houses anyways and if, if someone is laying bricks for a house and i toss them a brick they can use it to make the house bigger and stronger but if the house is built and i throw a brick at it it doesn't make the house stronger right so you know that's essentially what we're dealing with with zinc as as far as we know and it's really why to make these kinds of claims we need randomized controlled trials because the human body is much more like way more complex than a house and our our science is not at the stage where we understand every mechanism at play and can tamper with them at will so ultimately what we need is is clinical evidence and i'm really not aware of any supporting evidence for you know taking zinc to battle the virus itself or even uh, the symptoms of it. It's maybe plausible, but you know, not more plausible than any of the other number of, of compounds that have been suggested thus far to, to treat the virus. I guess another one of the other ones that came up on the show was this chloroquine stuff that I guess Trump had uh, recommended to people on like to the chagrin of <laughs> of the health expert that was standing next to him but uh, and and there's also the fact that there was somebody who died by drinking a different chlorine derivative that's used for aquariums thinking that that's what Trump was talking about but what it do you do you know about chloroquine is there any evidence that it is something of promise or to take note of so i'm i'm somewhat familiar with it so there's there's chloroquine and um it's i guess close relative hydroxychloroquine these have traditionally been used as anti-malarial drugs you know rather than antiviral drugs of course what we're dealing with here is a virus but the drugs started being looked at for coronaviruses following, I believe it was the, the 2012 MERS outbreak. MERS, of course, is a, a, another coronavirus. So the, there was some initial promising work in vitro, you know, looking at the virus interacting with cells outside the body in a controlled environment. But although it was, you know, somewhat promising, it really didn't pan out because the effects seen just weren't enough. You know, this is something that occurs over and over in the scientific world. There's a constant battle for funding and resources and we really can't pursue every plausible angle uh, for, for any interaction. So obviously now there's a renewed interest in the drugs, especially following you know Trump's, uh, I guess, endorsement of them. So there's some more, uh, there's more lab work and there are, uh, I believe, some international clinical trials investigating their use specifically with COVID-19. But I wouldn't recommend that anyone hold their breath here. Yeah. Not only is the mechanism of action not understood, but there really isn't, as of yet, any clinical evidence of, of benefits. And there are, you know, obviously risks. You know, the, the, the stage we're at is, uh, is similar to the old kind of, you know, bleach as a cancer cure analogy, if you've heard that one. You know, we, yeah, we, we know bleach kills cancer cells in a Petri dish, but, uh, you know, I shouldn't have to tell you that drinking bleach will not cure cancer. It doesn't? <laughs> yeah, no, some people do believe this specific claim. But yeah, you know, ha having results in vitro tells you surprisingly little. It, it tells you that you should go forward in investigating something if the effect is strong enough and, you know, if it's, if it's plausible on other levels and uh, if there's not, you know, serious consequences to, 
to human health from you know the side effects and and whatever uh, other interactions could occur. The sad thing too is, I mean, you know this, but this has happened frequently throughout medical history is like something will show promise and then a cult group type people will like latch onto it. And even when evidence starts coming up to show that it wasn't effective, they will still hold on to this hope that this is the miracle cure and still like promote it even after it's been sort of like shown to be not effective. Yeah, that holds true for pretty much any vitamin or mineral that's ever been named. And <laughs> you know, even chemicals that aren't vitamins or minerals, just pretty much anything that exists, you know, there's there's been at least some level of, of cult following in, in terms of using it for a cure for everything. For those who don't know, I used to have a podcast called Being Skeptical, and I think that's when we first got in touch. And I covered these topics all the time. So it was nice doing a throwback. I mean, I still sort of covered related themes because uh, pseudo health claims and conspiracy theories are pretty side by side. And dealing with Ezra is pretty much conspiracy theories nonstop. So thank you for that, Ryan. Well, thank you for having me. It was very interesting. As my cat starts yelling at me for talking. <laughs> Do you have anything you want to promote? I know you have your post-truth blog, although you uh, should post in it more frequently. But is where where can people find you? Do you want to plug your Twitter, stuff like that? Yeah, I do have a blog that I've been meaning to, you know, uh, write stuff for. More is coming soon, I promise. It's at posttruthhealth.ca. I'm pretty active on Twitter, uh, at Rye Armst. Um, probably a little too active. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if anyone is, if anyone is kind of interested in activism in this space in Canada, reach out to us at, at Bad Science Watch. We have some uh, new projects on the horizon. We're an entirely you know volunteer-run activist organization. We're always interested in uh, in having people come aboard and, and help us fight the good fight. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News of the Z. We have an Instagram account, News Imperial. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up. You can find the link on our Twitter. Lastly, you can email us any questions at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at striadam.bandcamp.com. And special thanks to Ryan again for coming on the show for that interview. Lastly, thank you for listening. And don't take health advice from far-right conspiracy theories. Theorists? God damn it, I didn't land <laughs> Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields.